Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Open Floor. I'm Andrew Sharp, and on the other line, Ben Golliver. What's up, man? Not too much, Andrew. Fresh off Warriors-Lakers overtime thriller at Staples Center last night. Not exactly. Uh, There was a brief moment, though, during the second half where Lonzo had more points, more assists, fewer turnovers, and more three-pointers than Steph Curry, and the world might have exploded (laughs) if that had continued and the Lakers had won the game. I'm pretty sure the internet has been waiting for that exact moment for you know about nine months now. Uh, alas, it didn't happen. Golden State got its stuff together. They win in overtime. Yeah, well, congrats to the Lakers, though. They made it more fun than anyone would have expected. And I, I, I know you're trying to downplay it, but I really did enjoy watching that game at one in the morning. Brandon Ingram coming out party a little bit against Kevin Durant. I mean, Julius Randle showed some signs of life. Kentavious Caldwell-Pope. Half of these guys won't be on the Lakers next year. But it was fun last night. It was a, g- a good little sort of early season curveball. Yeah, it was weird. I think it played better on TV than it did in person because I noticed a lot of people saying the same things uh, that you were on Twitter. Oh, this is so fun. It's entertaining, lighthearted. In the building, it was just kind of flat. And, you know, that all goes to Golden State. I'm not going to dwell on this too much, but after the game, this very exciting, triumphant uh, overtime comeback uh, road victory, Steve Kerr takes his victory lap by saying, you know, we haven't competed all season. We didn't really compete that hard in this game. And it was music to my ears because I think he's seeing the same things that I've been kind of uh, a little bit upset about with the Warriors. Uh, but it's true. I mean, these guys are definitely hoping teams will push them and challenge them and willing to just flirt with disaster all the way down to like the last play of regulation uh, like they did last night before turning it up. And I think he is pretty much settled into that. I'm not sure... Uh, he has a magic switch to kind of get through to them. I think most of their team has kind of settled into that. Yeah. Uh, and so, you know, we're kind of stuck with it. And it, it didn't make for a great product in person. I'm not you know, being overly negative on that. It just really was kind of this malaise to it. Uh, you know, the the only real moments of excitement in the building were Lonzo-related and then Ingram-related right. too. Well, listen, you and Steve Kerr are very much on the same page because you're both disgusted by the Warriors, you would both rather be on a politics podcast and probably exploring nature. And that's good company. You know, Steve Kerr is one of the more enlightened people we have in public life, certainly in sports anyways. So you should stop right there. Stop right there. I don't deserve to be in the same sentence with Steve Kerr. And you missed the transition because I set you up for some Brandon Ingram gushing, but then it just went. No, we're good. We're good. And you know what? We've spent too much time on the Warriors and even the Lakers lately. And we've been ignoring the Cleveland Cavaliers. So let's get into it here at the top. Alex sent us an email. He says, Leaders of the open floor globe, the Cavs are finally starting to heat up again and are looking like the Cavs we know. While many were ready to go into total pandemonium about their rocky start to the season, cough, Andrew, cough, it appears they've finally got the gears turning. So my question is, is IT going to be able to smoothly come in and help them take the next step? Additionally, even if he does come in and take them to the next level in the East, Will it be enough to hang with the Warriors? So I think right off the top, we can say that it's probably not going to be enough to hang with the Warriors, but that's not how we should judge the Cavs or really anyone else in the league because that's a a great way to make everything half as fun as it could be. 
But what are you seeing from the Cavs so far? Well, I've been seeing a lot of takes recently that says, well, you know, Cleveland's back, but their defense is still terrible, and that's going to be the deciding factor if they make the finals. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure that's true. I didn't think that was true last year. It proved not to be true. Their offense was so overwhelming, no one could stop them. Uh, When LeBron's playing at this level, I don't see a good positional matchup uh, for him on any of the major, you know, second-tier contenders in the East. So I think they're still... Uh, certainly on track. One thing I'd say in terms of Isaiah's return, though, uh, I am very curious to see how he looks different, kind of just aesthetically, uh, in Cleveland compared to Boston, because we noticed the flip, right? Like Kyrie going to Boston, all of a sudden, uh, his one-on-one skills are are showcased very well, but he's also kind of more into this team concept, more on the move. Uh, He's setting up his teammates better. It just flowed more naturally, and it seemed like a five-man attack rather than just an Uncle Drew commercial. I am a little concerned that the opposite effect could take place in Cleveland, where all of the things that Brad Stevens did to really unlock Isaiah last year Mm -hmm. could go by the wayside a little bit, and it could get a little into my turn, your turn basketball uh, with LeBron. Uh, But at the same time, Help is still needed uh, in Cleveland for LeBron James. There's still plenty of possessions for somebody else to pick up the slack. I think he's done a great job as a stabilizing uh, influence so far. Yeah. Uh, But I do expect a little choppiness there with the offense once Isaiah returns, just as he settles into what they're trying to do. And he sort of molds his game to the role that's going to be allowed for him as sort of a number two guy. Man, as soon as he gets back, I'm going to become such a shameless Cavs fan because it's just nice after everything that he's gone through it's going to be so fun to root for him again and uh, but that's a really good point that we could sort of see a little bit of a market correction on him uh outside of Boston but I don't know I'm not I'm not going to get too pessimistic on Isaiah right now I do think that like the Cavs for me and I'll be honest I haven't seen like half of these games I've caught parts of others uh but I still am worried about them like the last two weeks doesn't really change anything for me just because looking up and down that roster like yeah D Wade and Corver and Channing Fry have been really productive for the past three weeks but I don't know if you can sustain that over six months and I also don't know how much they're going to be able to do that in the playoffs and um I'm still worried about them. Like I, 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 I can't help it. And it's not to say that like, I, I, I'm not going to predict that they're not going to make the finals because again, like the rest of the East is pretty shaky too, particularly when you start talking about teams being at like an elite level and, and against LeBron in the playoffs, like it's, it's dicey to trust any of these teams, but the Cavs are in that mix where like, I don't know how much I trust them. Yeah, you just need to trust them. I, I I know it's your natural instinct to go against the grain here. These guys are good. Kevin Love's been stepping up, playing really well, had some recent scoring outbursts. Mm-hmm. And LeBron is just getting to the rim at will, bodying people at will. The more everyone else spreads out uh, defensively, the easier it is for him to attack and create. Well, he's and, also and been he loves much do. better on defense the last couple weeks. Like the the first two weeks of the season, he was completely checked out, and the rest of the team followed his lead. And now you can start to see him trying a little bit harder. Okay, I think we need to clarify this. So you're still worried about them, but has your panic 
Has your concern receded at all since two weeks ago? Yeah, my concern has receded. But I mean, look, even when the Cavs came into D.C., I went to shoot around. I talked to people like people around that team were saying this is a little different than last year. So it wasn't just like outsiders who were concerned, like people the 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 mix is is not what they've had there for the for the past few years. And it just is a matter of like. It it takes a toll on a team to go year after year after year, play 100 games, and I think that we're going to get to the second half of the season, and there's going to be less firepower there than there has been in the last few years. Yeah, I mean, I think the only person who it matters if there's a toll on is LeBron right yeah, now. Yeah, you're probably right. In the East, that probably 20- is all that matters. I mean, right now he's at 28, 8, and 8. I mean, that's absurd. Uh, Any signs of fatigue or anything, you know, it just hasn't been there. Uh, And then when you look forward to, I mean, I think Isaiah, in terms of the minutes he's going to be able to handle once he's healthy, that will really help all of these other people. And they've done a very nice job of uh, making do in different roles. I mean, they will get Tristan back, you know. I mean, that's another guy playing big minutes. So to me, there's... Uh, reinforcements around the corner. Yeah. And they're actually ahead of where I would have expected at this point of the season based on all the nonsense that they've gone through. Uh, And I think it's a credit to LeBron. The other thing I'd also say just to close, imagine how bad it has to get for LeBron not to be able to save the day, right? I mean, we like two years ago during the playoffs, all of his key teammates get get injured. He still pulls them through to the finals. I mean, he's been through multiple different situations over the years, both in Miami and uh, and in Cleveland, remember Bosch was injured for a long stretch of the playoffs one year where none of that other stuff really mattered. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think it's so bad right now in Cleveland that LeBron can't still play Superman. Yeah, no, and you're right. And you've been right on this for most of the season. You've you've refused to panic. You've refused to get concerned. And I, this if this is the current roster... I will be a little bit wary of trusting them in the playoffs, but this might not be the roster. And again, Isaiah will change the equation. You're right about that. But you talk about reinforcements. And to go back to another example of you being correct, I think three weeks ago, we came on this podcast and it was one of those weeks where the Cavs looked awful and you said, I think we should be less concerned about the Cavs and more concerned about the Thunder. And that could not have been more spot on. So congrats to you for that take. But in addition, I think it there, there's also sort of a wild card there with the Cavs where like, if Paul George is available, there's nowhere in the NBA that makes more sense than Cleveland. And then it could get really interesting. Yeah, so we had a question from Jake. He asked, uh, what do you guys think about a DeAndre for Tristan Thompson plus a first-round pick trade scenario? Uh, Who says no? Would that be a good fit in Cleveland? And, you know, you're mentioning Paul George. And uh, has your thinking changed at all? Because earlier this season you said, you know, don't trade the pick no matter what. The risk is too high. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, if if LeBron is going to leave next summer, you have to have that chip in your pocket. Uh, Because it's a Brooklyn pick, it's going to be a pretty good pick. Uh, when you look at like DeAndre or Paul George, I mean, where do you draw the line? To me, sacrificing that pick to get DeAndre Jordan on a rental, that's a non-starter. Exactly. That's just not going to happen. DeAndre's not been that good this season. He's been solid, but not 
like all NBA first team level center. Right. And the fit there is good. But again, it's tricky because if you're making that trade, you're making it for the finals. And is DeAndre going to create matchup problems against Golden State in the finals? Or is he going to be a matchup problem because he's sort of a traditional center and the free throw shooting issues and so forth? So uh, I wouldn't do it there. I would still think about it for Paul George, though. What about you? I'm with you, man. I mean, I'm I'm with you on both fronts. I don't really understand why DeAndre Jordan would be so attractive to the Cavs unless they're just sort of if they if the season did sort of take a turn over the next month or two and things got really dark and they were just in a situation where they needed to try anything to jumpstart the roster like then maybe you take a shot at DeAndre. But even in that scenario, I wouldn't give up the Nets pick. I basically wouldn't give up the Nets pick for anyone in the league, including like Boogie, that's been thrown out there a couple times. Like, I don't know how well he would fit with LeBron, um, just personality wise, and whether that would be enough to like convince both Boogie and LeBron to stay this summer. It would be a big risk. But Paul George is the one guy who it would make a lot of sense to sort of gamble on and and see if you can convince him to stay in June. And he's the one guy who would have LeBron's attention. If they get to June and and July and and Paul George is ready to commit to stay in Cleveland, like that makes the situation so much more attractive than it would be otherwise. And like I think that that sort of gives them a better shot at signing him to to the degree where like they need to they need to take that risk. And like I I get that the the Nets pick is really valuable security against him leaving, but they sort of have to go for it if George is available. Yeah, I would really think long and hard about it. I totally understand the long-term value of the Nets pick. And when you look at sort of the top five shaping up in this year's draft, the quality that's there, uh, you know, if that pick winds up sort of in that range, maybe it's not right now. Yeah. Um, That is a lot of motivation to keep it. But I've been a big fan of the idea of Paul George to Cleveland since it was first floated, you know, prior (laughs) to the whole Kyrie thing. And it only makes more sense now because you still have that same problem where somebody has to guard Durant in the finals. I mean, someone has to have that matchup who can help LeBron, who can take some of that pressure off. I think the more natural matchup for Cleveland is to shift LeBron onto Draymond uh, and have somebody else do the dirty work of chasing Durant around, challenging all of his shots, being a pest and all that stuff. The only guy I really see up to that task on that elite level who's available at all is Paul George. And so if that means parting with your pick to really give yourself a chance to win a title this year, I would definitely think about that if I was Cleveland, no doubt. Yeah. I mean, it's still really early. I don't think George is going anywhere until the 11th hour in OKC, and they're going to have to have another six to eight weeks of just nightmarish basketball. But look, that's part of what's made this such a dream three-week stretch for Cleveland is not only are they playing well, but the Thunder are sort of devolving into chaos and there's room to dream uh, for the Cavs. So we will see where it goes. But speaking of another trade target and one a guy you already mentioned, so what do you think of the DeAndre Jordan situation? Like, I, to me, I've heard a number of people throw him out. Like I heard Zach Lowe talking on the low post this, this week, throwing him out as a, as a really attractive trade target for teams. But I just, I guess I'm not seeing it because he, he's due to make so much money this summer and you're basically getting like a three month rental. I don't understand why he would have that much trade value. Well, first of all, I do think 
his skill level is higher than what he's shown so far this season just because they haven't had their point guards there with the Clippers and now Blake's out, right? So he's just kind of a man on the island waiting for somebody to throw him a capable lob pass so he can finish it. Mm -hmm. And then he's also, you know, going to have those typical motivation issues on defense because what are you playing for? If you're a big guy, you have to have something to play for, especially if you're not a scoring big guy. This team doesn't really have a ceiling with the Clippers, so therefore it's hard to ask him max effort night after night. So I think he's a better player than he's shown so far this season. Uh, But you want to make sure that you've got a lead point guard, you've got a lead ball handler who can make the most out of him. I do think LeBron would be able to do that. Uh, To me, I don't see why you would even need to include a pick. Like if it's DeAndre for Tristan straight up, uh, I mean, the Clippers, you know, beggars can't be choosers here, right? Like he's walking out the door, you know, no matter what, uh, I would think next summer. I mean, unless they just throw him some crazy long-term offer that he can't say no to. But right. uh, do you really want to do that if you're LA? From that standpoint, like, isn't that pretty fair value? Just a straight up trade between DeAndre and Tristan? I don't think it's uh, it's that far off. I mean, Tristan's good. Uh, I think uh, it would be sort of like the off-brand version for the Clippers of what they did in trying to get Beverly back for Paul. It's like, we don't want to create a gigantic hole, so we're just going to get someone uh, who we can count on and use and fill minutes. Uh, So I think, you know, having him under contract for multiple years would be beneficial to the Clippers. They don't really have anyone else up front other than Willie Reed, who I think is underrated, solid, uh, but not spectacular. Uh, it would give you a little bit of a base so you maybe wouldn't be absolutely atrocious kind of going forward to give you a little structure for your rebuild. Yeah, uh, I would consider if I was the Clippers and I would consider it uh, if I was uh, the Cavaliers too, no question, well, just sure. because if you, can, you have that vertical threat. Yeah, if you can get DeAndre without giving up the Nets pick and, and it's just a straight up swap with Tristan Thompson, that makes sense. <laughs> and imagining the Cavs headed into the finals with DeAndre Jordan, Kevin Love, LeBron James... I guess J.R. Smith would be the fifth starter, and Isaiah as the point guard would be, oh, no, Paul George. (laughs) So Isaiah Thomas, Paul George, LeBron, Kevin Love, DeAndre Jordan. Like, that's insane to think about. And I don't think— That's a squad. Yeah, I don't know if that's enough to beat the Warriors, but that's enough to scare them more than Cleveland has over the past few years, Uh, or at least more than they did last year with Durant. So— but beyond that, because I don't think that the I, like I don't think Tristan Thompson would be enough for the Clippers to do that deal. So, are there other teams around the league that you think make sense for DeAndre? Uh, I mean, just anybody uh, who's needed a center that we've talked about in the boogie stuff. I mean, what about Washington? How, how excited are you about the prospect of adding DeAndre instead of uh, Gortat? I would be. I think DeAndre would make a big difference um, relative to Gortat, just because like. I think Gortat is a big reason the Wizards struggle on defense. He's just a step slow at this point in his career. And when your big man is slow and easily pushed around, like it's really hard to play good defense against good teams. Um, so DeAndre would be a huge upgrade in that department. But he's also like, again, it's an opportunity cost. Because if you're if you're trading for DeAndre, that means you're not trading for someone who's better. And that means you're probably going to have to pay him 25 million dollars this summer or more and that to me just isn't worth it at this point like just because of his limitations offensively and because of his limitations down the stretch with the free throw shooting like I think there are real weaknesses that are going to give teams pause 
Yeah, that's why you're never going to win a title, that mentality right there. You know, you're not willing to go for broke. You're not willing to shell out the big bucks. I think that would be a really nice fit, no, by the way. No, no, excuse got me. I'm not going mean, to stand you- for this. I'm not going to stand for this. I'm saying that good is the enemy of great here. DeAndre Jordan is good. You can be a solid three seed in the East if you trade for DeAndre Jordan. If you're the Wizards, if you're the Bucks, like there are a couple teams around there who could use him. I'm saying that like, don't give up your shot at Boogie for DeAndre Jordan. He's, he is a consolation prize. Okay, well, let's just say Boogie's not available. They've been playing well in New Orleans. Uh-huh. And your options are rolling with your current squad or trading for DeAndre. I think DeAndre gives you a chance to make the finals this year, doesn't he? I mean, I think the fact that you have to hug up on Otto now because he's such a good shooter, the fact that you have to pay a lot of defensive attention to both Wall uh, you know, and Beal. The fact that Markeith can spread to a certain degree opens up a lot of room inside yeah. for Look. DeAndre to finish. And that, that would really add a new element to their offense that they haven't had. I mean, the pick and roll game is very nice between Wall and Gortat, but Gortat is not throwing down like thunderous dunks at a 70% clip uh, over anyone and everyone, right? I mean, it's just a different level of athleticism offensively. And then I think he's a better defensive player, you know, by a decent amount there too. So uh, if the goal is, hey, let's try to get this current group, which is, you know, Wall and Beal, let's try to really get over the hump with them and then figure out the money stuff later, why wouldn't you do that? Look, I could talk myself into it. <laughs> Don't worry about it. If, if, that's, if that's what ends up happening in D.C., I will be right there ready to love DeAndre Jordan and sell myself on the, like, fake finals dreams that will emerge from there. But I... I, I just wouldn't necessarily jump at the opportunity if I were Washington. And the same is true. Like I heard Milwaukee thrown out as a potential destination and that doesn't make a ton of sense to me either. Like I, he, he would be a massive upgrade over John Henson and Thon maker. Absolutely. But like, I don't, I don't know whether he really like changes the bottom line for them. Yeah, I think the concern on that one is, are you going to be able to keep them, right? Yeah. I think if you're trading for DeAndre, you're definitely trying to, to turn the rental into the longer-term deal, similar to the Ibaka situation for the Raptors last year. Mm-hmm. Uh, not to just boil this down, but like DeAndre is a Texas guy. He's real. He likes the LA uh, climate. He's mentioned warm weather, warm weather. I mean, there was a reason why Dallas He's, was like his finalist last year. Yeah. Or not last year, but the last time he was on free agency. So for a team like Milwaukee, that would give me major red flags. It would certainly drive down what I'd be willing to offer to keep him because I'd be worried he would just turn around and leave next summer. Uh, And for that reason, I would definitely look at a team like the Rockets who already peeled Chris Paul off of the Clippers as another place where uh, a little bit of a homecoming vibe uh, for DeAndre, total knowledge that he's going to fit with their system in terms of his finishing ability, uh, you know, upgrade in terms of interior defense. Uh, it makes a lot of sense, and we know more gambles too. Yeah, that's a good point on Milwaukee. Going from LA, going from like the first eight or nine years of your career in LA to life in Milwaukee would be kind of a rude awakening. Um, and I really like DeAndre, the guy. Like, and he's he's also is probably one of the most popular players in the NBA. Like among guys in the league, everybody seems to love DeAndre Jordan. So I it, I'm excited to see him in a different situation. It'll just be interesting to see how that happens because like mechanically 
a lot of these teams don't have room for him. And you're you're right. Like the Milwaukee situation is a great example where like if they did give up like Jabari Parker to get him, they would then feel pressure to overpay him next summer. And I don't know. I don't think Milwaukee should do anything until they get rid of kids so that they can get some clarity in terms of what they actually have and, and what's working and what's not. It's hard to it's hard to tell right now. Yeah, it's one thing to give up a Terrence Ross to get a Sergi Ibaka. It's another to give up a Jabari Parker to get DeAndre Jordan. It just doesn't add up yeah. uh, in terms of sort of your long-term plan. And it's not just DeAndre's like NBA career his whole life. I mean, college in Texas, uh, you know, growing up the whole time in Houston. I mean, they... They produced like this big uh, TV documentary for DeAndre after he uh, re-signed with the Clippers. I think um, that might have been you know part of their pitch to kind of keep him. And they actually rented out a, a TV theater in LA, invited a bunch of people to go watch this movie. And in the movie, it really underscores how much he loves Texas, and that's one reason why I think you know that's kind of where my eyes would be uh, in terms of where he might get dealt. Okay. Uh, well, we've got a bunch of other questions, so let's move on and just sort of jump around here. We'll start with two Wolves questions. The first is, is more theoretical. Mike says, I'm a huge Wolves fan, and I'm hoping you guys can help me with something I've spent the whole decade wondering about. How do you think a Steph Curry-Ricky Rubio tandem would have played out? Ben, I'll let you go first. Well, we have our favorite emailer. His name is Waz, and he basically <laughs> trolls you about three times a week. But his recurring message to us is to not talk about the Timberwolves because I think whatever our takes are, usually they're kind of like upset you know, him. Yeah, yeah. Well, they're usually like kind of you know unhappy or we're like griping or whatever, and he always just gets so angered. And I just love that you included this question because I know this is going to ruin his whole day. And we're going to shout him out. He's going to be happy for five seconds. Then he's going to realize that we have to break down the what if with Steph Curry for the next 10 minutes. And he's going to throw his iPhone against the wall. Sure. Uh, my, my big concern about Curry uh, in Minnesota is just, does he ever become who he has become? And their structure in terms of like how they treated Kevin Love during the David Kahn era was an absolute mess. I mean, they never catered to him. There was a lot of, uh, you know, front office attitude towards the star, like, hey, get in line instead of sort of building the whole thing around him. Yeah. Everybody remembers the long-term contract and all of that. There was a lot of work that went into building Steph Curry up, uh, most notably uh, the Monta Ellis trade, but then also sticking with him through the injuries, having that faith, turning him loose offensively, having the vision to understand that there isn't really a bad shot for him. And given Minnesota's track record over the last 15 years, uh, and especially how dark it got during that David Kahn era, I would question whether any of those things would have happened and if we ever really get this Steph Curry phenomenon. I guess in terms of the fit with Rubio, uh, we can definitely say uh, Clay Thompson's a much better partner <laughs> yeah, for Steph Curry exactly. than Ricky Rubio. <laughs> so I'm not dying to see how that would have played out. I mean, Rubio is kind of crunching the court a little bit. Obviously, his playmaking, uh, he would have a lot of opportunity to do that. But I think you'd see teams really load up on Steph uh, in a way that they're not able to, right. uh, given Clay's presence. And then now you're going to have this situation where, again, does Steph ever really get to have the freedom uh, to become who he really became in those MVP seasons uh, because he's facing constant you know, overloaded defenses? Yeah, it's funny, man. My reaction to this question was uh, the, the first time I saw it, I said, ooh, that would have been incredible. Like, can you imagine, like, Rubio... Paired with some shooting, it would be perfect. They're both playmakers. Would have been so much fun. 
And then I thought about it for an extra 10 seconds and was like, man, thank God Steph Curry did not go to Minnesota. That could have gotten so dark. And if anything, like the silver lining on that is that the Wolves are in a much better spot now than they were. Like, I think we forget just how dysfunctional things had gotten there for a solid like 10 years. And I I really am convinced that if Steph had gone to Minnesota, it would have been kind of a mess. And I feel the same way about Steph in New York, which is another sort of what if that gets thrown out a lot. Like, I'm not sure how exactly they would have ruined his game, but he would not be the Steph Curry we have today. And that would have been a bummer for everybody. And also like one of the reasons I liked the idea initially is that the Steph like is kind of a perfect guy to put next to Ricky Rubio, but Steph would not have been enough to save Ricky Rubio. And uh, I think there are just some, some issues that he has that were going to be issues wherever he wound up. And so I think we're all better off that it didn't work out that way, but it is a good what if. Um, I hadn't thought about that in a while. You know who's you know who's really better off because of this is Michael Jordan. Because if Steph goes to Minnesota, LeBron's probably got five rings going for six this season. <laughs> That's and a good then point. Things are getting really, really dicey in terms of that greatest of all time conversation. Yeah. Although maybe Steph goes to Minnesota and then years later they the Warriors end up trading Clay Thompson for Kevin Love and uh and that's how that's how we get the Splash Brothers but um I think we're going too far down the what if road now so yeah I'm I'm a reality based person let's bring this back <laughs> yeah. to the next question please moving back to present day wolves nick says I was listening to the pod on a drive from Milwaukee to Minneapolis for Thanksgiving, and my wife informed me for what is now the third time that Ben Golliver sounds exactly like Ben Wyatt, played by Adam Scott from Parks and Rec. I hope that comparison makes Ben feel a little bit better than Balkan Ben Golliver, Nikola Jokic. What do you think of that? Do you watch Parks and Rec? What's that? <laughs> it's a TV show. It's on Netflix. It's on NBC. You've never seen an episode? It's like popular culture, or what Come is? Come on, don't don't play dumb. You you've definitely seen no, at least one episode. I've never seen an episode, but thanks a lot, Nick's wife. Nick, I just want to warn you though, because our voices have scared off taxi cab drivers. Apparently, last week we heard I think his name was Brock. Our voices scared off mountain lions and bears. Don't let my voice scare your wife off, okay? I think I, you, <laughs> unless she's a big open floor fan, I wouldn't necessarily be force feeding her open floor episodes in the car over the holiday weekend. Just, just my two cents. Uh, looking at it from two thousand miles away. No, listen, man, that's a compliment. That's a big win for you. Adam Scott is very cool. Uh, ben Wyatt less cool, but is kind of on brand with Golliver. So I, I think you should be uh, happy with that comparison. So. Moving on to his Wolves question, though. He says, I was listening to the back and forth about Devin Booker on the latest pod, and I found Sharp's defense of Booker a bit baffling. The shtick has always been that Ben says young players are bad at defense and inefficient, but Booker... It's not a shtick. <laughs> but Booker has room to grow and move up on the top 100. Sharp, of course, loves inefficient young chuckers and so he loves booker that is a stick um yet as a timberwolves fan <laughs> i'm confused as to why sharp is such an andrew wiggins hater wiggins is no top 30 player at least at this point but how is his game much different than booker's all right so 
my issue with Wiggins is that he doesn't really create off the dribble either for himself or for his teammates. And uh, that gets really frustrating to watch after a while. Whereas Booker, Booker does have like a little bit more creativity to his game. And I think that's what caught me off guard his rookie year. Like he was running pick and rolls in Phoenix and he is, is good off the dribble. He can find teammates. And I just think that sort of gives him a leg up in the long term. Um, they are both sort of inefficient, struggle on defense. Like he's right about that. But to me, I just wonder if Wiggins has that other level to his game where he's actually able to create for other people. So remember, Nick, the perfect sharp player uh, is a chucker uh, who creates his own shots, who's from uh, the Pacific Northwest. Right. Now, that doesn't apply for Wiggins or Booker, but Booker is slightly closer to that ideal because he does have the handle. So Sharp's just a little distracted by the, the shiny new object of Booker's handle. <laughs> I don't think it goes much past that, does it? Wait, will you admit that Booker is a better creator than Andrew Wiggins? Oh, he definitely is. Okay. Um, but I think... Wiggins is a very talented scorer. He does he it in ways that you might not love, but he's good. And I think it's a very fair comparison that he's making. It's one that we've actually made during the top 100 exercise in terms of sort of charting Booker's rise, where we think it's going to go. We often peg him to Wiggins because a lot of the weaknesses are similar. Um, I would actually say Booker, it's really close. I think he might be uh, getting closer to his peak more quickly than Wiggins has yeah. uh, as an overall player. Uh, but I think the comparison he's making is very valid. That's that's a good way to put it. I mean, and look, Wiggins, one out of every three games, Wiggins looks awesome, and he is a version of the player that I guess he could become where he is, like, scoring 25 points a game. He just sort of manufactures offense, and, he, and he's great. And if he can be that guy every night, then he's going to be super valuable. But I just don't know if he's ever going to be that consistent. Um and it, yeah. one thing I'd say about Wiggins too recently, he's had some really nice chase down blocks just like scattered here and there. It's like if that becomes a thing where he is like that aware, understanding where he should be on the court, not quitting on plays, getting back, getting above the rim to block shots. I want to see that stuff regularly because he has all the physical tools, all the ability uh, to do that. If that becomes a part of his game, then we will uh, be able to elevate his ceiling as a player. Can we discuss the Wolves for a second? Because they might be the most bipolar team in the NBA. I watched them earlier this week against the Wizards, and it was kind of an, another disastrous night for them where, like, that was a super winnable game. The Wizards had no business being in it to the end, but, like, Carl Anthony Towns made Mahinmi look good, which is um, probably the most incredible achievement of the season. Uh, so congrats to Carl Towns. But then afterward, Jimmy Butler came out and said, I want everybody to work the way that I work. And it's wrong for me to think like that because people don't do it. But in my mind, I'm just like, why? Why don't you chase greatness the way that I do? So like, clearly people are frustrated. Music to my ears. <laughs> Music to my ears. But then- I'm gonna, One of these days, Andrew, I'm going to berate you in a text message with those exact same words. <laughs> yeah, that's true. You are kind of like the Jimmy Butler of NBA writers, so I look forward to that text message. But bigger picture, 
they followed that performance against the Wizards up with a dominant win over the Pelicans on Wednesday night. And they're just like a really tough team to figure out because there are nights when it really does click and you see it all coming together. Granted, the Pelicans lost Anthony Davis like early in the second quarter because Anthony Davis got ejected. But I don't know. I like I this is just I think we're going to be doing this all year with the Wolves where one night it looks like a complete disaster and then they have a couple games where they look like they could really do some things. Yeah, and I think that makes them one of the most fun teams to watch. You know, you never know what you're going to get. I'm in, you know, why not? <laughs> yeah, you never know when Jimmy Butler's going to have a meltdown and when Carl Towns is going to turn someone into a Hall of Famer. Um, yeah, we'll see where it goes. It I just it struck me this week that like we could keep having these Wolves conversations for the next five months and we'll never get any closer to the truth with that team. We, we may have to just sort of wait well, and see what happens in the playoffs. One thing I'd say just to wrap this up, positive note, this is for our homie Waz too. I like when a team responds to Butler's style of leadership with a win mm-hmm. rather than falling apart and turning to Instagram and popping shots like those Rajon Rondo Bulls last year and everyone <laughs> got in their feelings because, oh, they're calling out the young guys and all this. Everybody needs to work like Jimmy Butler needs to work. We know that. And the fact that that didn't splinter their locker room uh, is a good sign. Uh, Moving on. Steven says, after watching Tim Hardaway Jr.'s performance earlier this week and then thinking, maybe the Knicks actually did something right with that outrageous contract, I thought it's time to ask, which teams took the right gambles on free agency deals? Do you have any nominations, Ben? And we could honestly, we could just talk about Tim Hardaway because I think he alone is kind of the most surprising development uh, of the past free agency class. Well, go ahead and talk about him. I have nominees on good side and bad side, but what do you have to say about uh, THJ? I'm really happy for THJ, okay? Uh, As Long-time listeners of the podcast know, like, one of my favorite teams of all time was that two, 2012 Michigan basketball team, and I was I was expecting big things from everyone on that roster. I really liked Mitch McGarry. I really liked Trey Burke. I really liked Karis LeVert. I liked uh, Glenn Robinson III as well. Tim Hardaway Jr. was probably my least favorite NBA prospect, but I have I have a soft spot for everyone who was involved with that basketball team. And they should have won a title. They were screwed out of it against Louisville. Bullshit call in the in the title game. But bottom line is, even this summer when everybody was kind of hating on the Knicks, it felt like sort of a knee-jerk reaction to me because Tim Hardaway Jr. is not worth $70 million, but he's also not a bad player. And I think like... We've seen so many contracts get handed out to legitimately bad players, whether it's like Jan Mahinmi, Bismack Biombo, Joe Kim Noah. I understand people who just see the Knicks spending big money and think it's like automatically stupid and think that they should maintain as much flexibility as they can. But I think having a good player next to Tim Hart or next to Kristaps Porzingis is is worth it. Like you you want to give Porzingis a chance to succeed and. Hardaway is a is an above average wing. Yeah, well, it just makes a lot more sense if you're going to build around Porzingis to get somebody at Hardaway's age with his profile than any of the moves that Phil was making previously. So from that standpoint alone, like it was an upgrade, it was an improvement in thought process from the uh, Joakim Noah decision that uh, uh, Phil Jackson made and some of their other moves 
that were you know more veteran oriented you know in the past regime right um in ter- the other thing i'd say too is just age wise i think one of the things we're seeing from last uh summer's class is like that was a pretty good gamble because you're getting this guy's prime i'm gonna list some guys who got paid and you know they're in their prime sort of right now but you've got george hill blake griffin paul Millsap, sergi baca danilo gallinari Oof. uh zach randolph i mean all those guys are like what 27 28 and up yeah and you could say all those guys, if you go back and redo those contracts, whether it's to just not offer them or to drive a much harder bargain, you would probably say they all need redos, right? And so, again, from that standpoint, like who's going to give you better value over the entire course of the contract? Tim Hardaway Jr., given that you're getting uh, presumably healthy years through his prime, or some of these guys who are already either injured or not really peaking uh, this season and then still have multiple years to go at the end of the contracts. I think it's pretty clear uh, which one you'd rather have. So in that same vein, I'm going to give you a few of my favorite contracts from last summer. Okay. The first one's a little bit of a technicality. It's Chris Paul, and we haven't talked about him a lot. Uh, but, you know, obviously it was a trade, but he did just pick up that one year instead of becoming a free agent and, you know, basically cashing in a huge contract. From Houston's standpoint, that was such a win because you get all the benefit of Chris Paul on the court. And yes, he's injured or he was, but now he's back on the court. They've been unreal with him. I think when he's on the court, their offensive rating is 118, which is basically just like, <laughs> know. you know, sh- it's out of shatter the temperature gauge. It's ridiculous. So... You know, a team that wanted to take that next step, they're right on track to do that. Yeah. And well, Chris Paul the other and thing, the flexibility of that contract is why. The other thing with Chris Paul, though, is that's kind of the best possible situation for him as well because I don't think if you put him on a team where he has to play 35, 36 minutes a game and shoulder a lot of the workload, like I, I just feel like he's not in a spot in his career where he can do that for very much longer. But... In Houston, where he's allowed to sort of pick his spots and and take over for four and five minute stretches when they need him, like it's kind of a dream fit. And again, like we said before this season, like we're not going to really be able to know until the playoffs how how he and Harden fit together as closers. But for right now, it really does look like the best fit for him in the league. No doubt. And I really appreciate all your nice talk about Michigan go blue. Uh So I'm going to return the favor. Another one of my favorite deals uh, is Otto Porter, a similar kind of to Tim Hardaway Jr. in terms of, okay, you're getting a guy through his 20s. It's probably more money than a lot of people were willing to pay at the time. I think Otto is going to pay that deal off. No problem. I mean, to me, he has taken a huge step forward again this season. Uh, Just lock him in. He has the potential to be part of a contention worthy core. Uh, I love everything he's done so far this year. And in terms of like the bigger, longer term investments, again, you'd rather have a player like that uh, than some of the older guys who got paid this summer. Uh, Past that, smaller deals, shorter term deals or lower dollar deals. I think Rudy Gay was a real smart gamble about the Spurs. (laughs) I liked it at the time, but it's been better than I expected. Uh, I would also highlight that J.J. Redick move for Philly. Uh, You know, they're probably going to wish they had him under contract for more than one year at this point. And it was a high number for one year. But you look how well that starting five has played together when he's on the court. They're blowing teams just out. And and this could be a playoff team, uh, assuming good health this season. That makes the investment in him uh, totally worth it. Yeah. Uh, 
another guy I'd point to on the cheaper side, Aaron Baines for Boston. Everybody knows about his amazing defensive rating. You look at how much he got compared to some of the centers you were mentioning earlier, whether it was Biombo, Mahinmi, and so forth, a fraction of the cost, and he's doing you know essentially the same job, you know, playing pretty good minutes in Boston. And then one final one, kind of a deep cut would be Darren Collison for Indiana. I think he only got like $10 million a year. I have never been a huge Collison fan, but you look at their offense, uh, it's well above average. You look at their pace, it's significantly up from last year. He's a big part of that. That's sort of the one thing he does is kind of get a team up and down. Yeah. And then you just compare his price and their success to other point guards out there, whether it's Drew Holiday, Jeff Teague, or whoever those guys who we would consider are sort of a tier up from him. Uh, do you really want to pay three times as much for one of those guys or, or two and a half times as much or just settle for Collison? I think from the Pacers standpoint, the decision to sort of settle for Collison has really looked uh, pretty smart. And not too many people are talking about that. Obviously, the the Oladipo factor is sort of overweighing that. No, uh, he's but been I would solid. Say, he's like he's the consummate sort of bottom 15 point guard who will he, he'll still show up every night and give you 30 minutes of like capable point guard play. He's not going to be better than most of the guys he's facing every night but he's he's a decent sort of placeholder yeah so those are my value guys okay yeah i can't think of a more boring podcast topic than darren collison but i'm glad you gave him a little bit of love there the yeah it's a good list thank you for preparing i was less prepared for this question um the couple things my my reactions would be it's really upsetting that the Spurs and Celtics are just smarter than other teams and are able to pluck guys like Baines and Rudy Gay off the market and make them twice as valuable as they would be anywhere else. Um, that's one of like the greatest inefficiencies in, in the NBA today is that like those teams do shit like that every single summer. And uh, it's frustrating for teams of or for fans of less intelligent organizations um, and I still can't believe how much the Wizards are paying Mahinmi. But the the JJ deal was another one that like that was just a really smart play from Philly. And if anything, like I give credit to the front office, but I also think that the fans over the last four years deserve a little bit of love for striking fear into the hearts of like Brian Colangelo and company, because <laughs> I think that they all feel pressure to be like a little bit more creative and, and maintain a little bit more flexibility than they otherwise would. And the, the Reddick deal was a great example of that where like, that was just a really shrewd play from them. Um, the, the flip side. Hold on though. Cause one thing I wrote about Reddick during our top 100 exercise, I got real cute with it. And I said, he's basically doing like the reverse fresh Prince of Bel Air because uh, he's not going from Philly to LA like Will Smith, but he's doing the opposite. He's going from LA uh, to Philly and his life's about to get flipped, turned upside down. That was my line. You know, the whole setup was for that. I can't believe my you argument wrote that. Was That's amazing. <laughs> Oh, it was Matt Dollinger's favorite. Shout out to our editor. Uh, he like highlighted that. That's He's got so the same, you know, corny, corny. sense of humor. <laughs> I know, of course. But look, my argument was this. He's going from this veteran dominated playoff team set up by an elite point guard with Chris Paul to a Sixers team that was, uh, you know, beset with injuries, question marks all over the place. Is Simmons a point guard? Is he not? Uh, rookie coming in. And they may or may not have postseason aspirations. So I was really concerned, like, that's going to change uh, how well he plays and, you know, how well he looks. 
And the opposite has been the case. He's been same old JJ and this team uh, with Simmons emerging now. I mean, he's not Chris Paul, but he's way no, up he's there in good, terms man. of you know elite playmakers. The fits worked out great. Reddick's been able to do what he does best. They're most likely going to make the playoffs and be a, a serious playoff team. And he's fit into a really cohesive a five-man unit that plays well on offense and plays well on defense, just like that Clippers unit last year. So his life did not get flipped, turned upside down, okay? He changed <laughs> zip codes, but he's still the same old JJ. Yeah, well, and I'm just a big fan of young teams that actually invest in capable NBA players who have their shit together. And that's one of the reasons I wasn't as appalled by the Tim Hardaway deal, because like it just helps to have guys who know what they're doing and who can score and give... like provide spacing and reddick reddick even if the sixers weren't this good he made sense for that reason because he sort of like would open up the floor and allow ben simmons to breathe a little bit and allow Embiid to have a shooter around him and uh it was just a really smart play the other side of this that you mentioned like a lot of these guys who are who are getting up there age-wise whether it's Millsap, whether it's blake whether it's gallinari i don't know like I worry that we're so the NBA is turning into the NFL a little bit where like the most recognizable guys on the free agency market are generally not the best investments because they're kind of on the wrong side of their career. And maybe that's just last summer. And so we shouldn't be that concerned, but like all those guys were really expensive. And so far it's, it's tough to dock Millsap too much because that seemed like kind of a fluke thing. But like even Jeff Teague, like Jeff Teague's been pretty productive for Minnesota, but I just feel like they could have spent that money better. Yeah, I just feel really bad for Denver because Millsap's played in 94% of his team's games yeah. before his injury over the course of his career. And then he gets this fluky thing. He's out for a few months and that could change the whole course of their season. And it could determine whether that winds up being you know, a good investment or a bad one. So I wasn't necessarily saying those were like horrible deals. I was trying to kill them. I'm just saying like, they haven't you look back out. at the biggest name, biggest dollar deals where you wanted to get the maximum value this year from those investments. Those teams just haven't been able to do it in large part because of injury. Yeah, I agree with you. Um, too early to say that the NBA free agency is turning into the NFL, but it's something to watch. Uh, let's move on to another situation to watch. We've talked about the Thunder for two straight podcasts so we don't need to overdo it here but after the magic game we have to revisit our favorite russell westbrook sean says blow it up in okc burn it down losing to the magic is a bridge too far and if there is one person i trust to get out ahead of burning it all to the ground it's sam presti what did you see in that orlando game man because it was pretty amazing to watch Aaron Gordon balled his butt off. I mean, he was unbelievable. Uh, I think for the Thunder, it was kind of the same old problems, but I think more than just that one game, it's a fascinating debate going on right now between the stat guys and the eye test guys because eye test guys are saying, look, the offense just doesn't work. Uh, Late in games, they struggle on both ends. There's a reason why they lose close games. Their best lineups aren't great. They have kind of weak links, too much uh, pounding, all the things that we said on last night's episode. Mm -hmm. The stat guys are saying the other thing. They're saying, look, when they do win, they win by huge margins. Their defense overall is elite, which means their clutch defense should improve over the course of the season. And, you know, their offense has probably been underperforming slightly as they're kind of getting used to each other, right? Right. So uh, 
the stat guys are not giving up this argument yet, and I'm talking uh, like Ben Falk and and Kevin Pelton are both still in on the Thunder. Uh, so and I let, think wait, there's wait, some wait. truth to what they're saying. Before though. we proceed, are you having an identity crisis here? Because I feel like to me, you've always been a stat guy, and you've always worshipped the religion of net rating and all that other bullshit. But at the same time, you've also been a hardcore Thunder skeptic every step of the way for the past year or two. So where do you, like, is this hard for you? Are you struggling? Well, this is why I bring this up. I mean, it's such a fascinating debate because, you know, I've got the angel on one shoulder and the devil on the other shoulder. I think there is some truth in what they're arguing, which is OKC is better than their record. I would grant that for sure. I think... The bigger question, though, that the stat guys might be underselling here is that they don't have tons and tons of time to wait for everything to sort of revert to where it's supposed to revert to, right? Like the point differential argument says, well, they're significantly above average. So over the course of an 82-game season, uh, these guys will get back to where they're supposed to be. That sounds great in theory, but in practice, you see Russell Westbrook holding his head on the bench after the loss to the Magic (laughs) and then going into the post-game press conference. Yeah, and then going into the post-game press conference and heaping all the pressure on his own shoulders. Then you've got Billy Donovan with all these kind of coded comments about how, you know, we're talking about the right habits, but we're just trying to break them. Uh, You know, essentially saying like, look, I know what our problems are. You guys are asking me questions about our problems. I get it. Yeah. We just haven't fixed them yet, and we don't know if we can fix them based on the personnel. And then you look at the big elephant in the room, which to me is Carmelo Anthony. It's like, I don't think this guy can get better and turn it around, right? Like, I think he just is who he is. No, no, I'm not saying that. I just think he is who he is, and it's mostly a factor of age. I mean, like watching him go against Gordon one-on-one, like you see the age difference there. Sure. And that's going to be an issue when he's playing against elite guys in the postseason. And so uh, the the key thing to me is they've got two months basically here to feel like, okay, we're getting back to where we should be. We, we have to get back to where our point differential says we should be. That's not that much time. I mean, consider how long we've had this season going already. It's five or six weeks, right? So uh, the clock is ticking more, I think, than a lot of the staff people want to admit. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I agree with the emailer. Presti will be the first one to pull the plug if he concludes that it's not working. But he's also one of those guys who's already uh, charted out every possible scenario for what he's going to do at the deadline. And I don't think he's going to make that type of decision uh, until right before it. And the same thing goes with Billy. You know, I don't think he's going to move on from Billy. I think he really trusts in Billy. And I think he's got to be honest with himself and saying, look, like what's any coach going to do to really fix this? You know, Billy has identified the problems. He's presented solutions. The team just hasn't followed through with those solutions. Yeah, I have a couple different reactions to what you were saying there. Um, Number one, I think one of the interesting things, because the stats guys really do put a lot of emphasis on net rating whenever they're evaluating any of these teams and, and point differential and all that stuff. And like, I think a lot of that is skewed with OKC because they've had two games against the Bulls where they've just blown them off the court. And it's still early enough where a couple outliers like that can swing things up like more than people realize. And obviously guys like Kevin Pelton like understand that, but I just think that that is sort of altering our perception of, of OKC in a numbers context. Um, and from the we've we've already discussed everything that's wrong. They don't get easy easy shots. Paul George is not efficient enough to just like get a bailout 
pass from Russ with six seconds on on the shot clock and go make something happen. And Melo is a minus defensively and is probably not good enough to like make up for it offensively if you're playing him 30 minutes a game. Um, and they might be better off with Melo coming off the bench and put put Patrick Patterson out there to start and spread the floor a little bit to give George and Russ more room to work. But mostly, the only reason I included this is because I wanted to talk about how insane Westbrook's fourth quarter was last night. Because keep in mind, the Magic were up 20 at this point, And like DJ Augustine was getting whatever he wanted and, and nailing threes in guy's face. Like it was, it was incredible in that respect alone. But then Russ comes in and takes like six or seven shots that were so completely ridiculous. If I were Paul George, I would have demanded a trade on the spot. Like any, any one of those possessions would have been enough to make me say, all right, this shit is not going to work. Get me out of here. But Russ made the shots, which almost made it sadder because it was like, this is going to continue as long as these shots go in. And he he scored 20 points in the fourth quarter, and they were never really within striking distance to actually win. And the whole thing was just a, a, a crazy bummer to me. Like, it, it sort of like you saw how they got there and what, and what the problems are, and you saw a point guard who, like, may not realize what the solution is. Yeah, it's almost like he's playing with purpose, but not a purpose, right? <laughs> yeah, so we've covered it. I just, you know, it's crazy. Like, that. It the, the situation in OKC is incredible right now. And again, like, if you've, if you've covered Westbrook over the last three or four years, I think in, if there's one thing I've learned, it's that every time the entire world is hating on him and every time all the criticism looks like it's being validated he'll turn around and make the critics look ridiculous. So I would expect that starting Friday night against the Wolves and then they play the Spurs on Sunday, like I would expect that that Russ and the Thunder are actually going to turn it around pretty quickly over the next week or two. And then a lot of this like melodramatic criticism will look stupid. Um, But big picture, long term, like there are still some pretty concerning structural issues there. For sure. And I also think we should give credit to Orlando. I mean, they're on a long losing streak before that game. I mean, there is a lot of star power. You can get caught up in that if you're a young team going against them. To come out and just lay the wood to them for four quarters, to not be uh, you know, daunted by any of those comeback attempts by Westbrook or anyone else in that game, just keep playing your game. And then the breakout, like I mentioned from Aaron Gordon, I thought that was a real special game for them. Yeah, congrats to Orlando. Uh, that was a good win. And it's fun to see Aaron Gordon looking as good as he's been over the last couple, the last month or two has been really fun. And I hope he can keep it going. But two more questions here before we hit the podium. Jordan says, recently my fiance started experiencing some soreness and pain in her right arm, shoulder, and back. She works as a teacher of a 4K preschool classroom. At first, the pain was a little ambiguous, but one day, the cause of it hit her. She had started playing dodgeball with the kids during their exercise part of the day. Now, she is a great teacher, but like anyone who works with young students, there are some who frustrate or challenge her on a daily basis. So when the time came to play dodgeball, a great opportunity presented itself for her to let out a little bit of her frustration towards her most antagonistic kids. 
Jordan, this sounds a little bit fucked up, but we're going to let you keep rolling here. So he continues. He says, I'm glad you said so that. So in dodgeball, she was hurling her right-handed fastball at kids like a maniac. Not surprisingly, the overaggression led to shoulder and arm so- soreness. So the next day, she came home and told me how, despite the soreness, she was still playing dodgeball against the students. However, with the pain throwing off her form and velocity, she had resorted to tossing the, do- the dodgeballs left-handed. Not an effective strategy, but really her only choice. And as she told me this story, it dawned on me that my fiance is kind of the Markel Fultz of preschool dodgeball. So that was a fantastic email. Uh, and then what a payoff there with that, <laughs> that last line. I love it. It really did. I wonder how many listeners knew where that was going. And then Michael threw out, if Markel Fultz has an injured shoulder, where is his sling? So I'm going to let you respond to either Jordan's uh, fiance analogy or Markel Fultz generally. Look, I have no idea, really. I would say I sent you some video the other week when I was at that virtual reality event where I was shooting three-pointers. Mm-hmm. And I was trying to shoot the three-pointers uh, using my textbook lefty form. But for whatever reason, the sensors just like wouldn't work. So instead of having like the perfect follow-through and the release, you know, I, I mean, I'm not like Clay Thompson over here. Right. But, you know, I had a fairly decent form. I just started kind of chucking them up one-handed with my right hand. And I felt really awkward and dumb doing that because there was people watching and clearly it looked like I'd never played basketball before. But the game was recognizing the right-handed shot better and giving me credit for it. So I guess this kind of makes me sort of like his wife and Markel Fultz. (laughs) And I so I think my advice for Markel Fultz would be is um, there's not that much difference between virtuality and real life. Sure. Um, So... Maybe just try it the other way. I mean, just give it a go. See what happens. I think Fultz has already tried the left-handed jumpers, and it didn't work out so well. And in the, in the video I saw from Sixers practice, uh, the virtual reality thing is interesting because, like, there's a lot of hype around VR and everything that's possible there. But every time I've played one of those VR basketball games, it has been really frustrating and like worlds away from what it's like to actually shoot a basketball. So it's not to hate on their engineers too much, but like there's there's a long way to go before those things are actually fun. I'm sure you enjoyed it, but every time I do it, I'm just like, this is stupid. I'd rather play a normal video game. What an unbelievably condescending thing to say. <laughs> I'm oh, I'm sure you enjoyed it. Oh, yeah. Okay. Thanks. <laughs> well, look. Appreciate you that. You sent me a picture of you with the VR headset and everything. I don't know. As for Fultz, man, I, the, the Fultz thing is really tricky because I've heard from I've heard different things from different people. I've heard a couple people tell me that it was mental and he basically got the yips and the Sixers were freaked out about it and no one knew what to do and the shoulder injury kind of became like... A, a way to sort of cover it up and let him go away for a few weeks and try to find himself. I don't, I don't even know what you say, but the, uh, then I've also heard that the shoulder injury is real and that like he needed some time to just get healthy before he tries to like write the ship. And we really have no idea what's going on. It, it, this is This is the type of thing, like everyone realizes it's crazy now, but like three or four years from now, we're going to look back at the first year of Mark- Markel Fultz, where he just sort of mysteriously disappeared for four months and be amazed that that really happened. So we'll see. I, I think the one thing you can say for Fultz is that the entire, the entire NBA is rooting for him to like 
come back and and kind of reclaim some dignity here. Yeah, I'm with that. I also think they don't need him. I mean, yeah. you know, it'd be nice to have him, but this year they don't need him. They're just fine without him. So I would keep him if away. If they want to leave him away for the whole season, I would almost just redshirt yeah. him. I'm fine with I that. I think that's a decent plan. But anyways, good luck to Markel Fultz and good luck to Jordan's fiance. Um, although I don't know just if he deserves it. Send him it. away, <laughs> get him a VR game. He can practice for like the next six months in virtual reality. Maybe that'll help get through his mental issues and his physical issues simultaneously. I think we've got the the recovery plan all set. Just go ahead and CC Brian Colangelo on that. Great. Good solution. Um, all right. A couple quick podium questions here. Ben says, I had some time to kill in Washington, D.C. after a conference, so I was listening to your pod while touring the Air and Space Museum and the Museum of Natural History, which got me thinking, has Golliver ever ranked his top museums? And I included this because I'm, I'm curious as your friend, like, do you like museums or are you just strictly an outdoors guy? Well, you know, I did actually reply to this guy already, you know, breaking down my Perfect. museums. I, I wasn't I wasn't totally sure you were going to uh, include this one because we do get a little navel gazy here sometimes. <laughs> I would say that in general, I like museums to really, you know, be on brand though. Sometimes the museums with the historical revisionism and the whitewashing of history that bother me a okay. little bit, right? Like it, it's a little awkward sometimes. For example, the British Museum in London's phenomenal, right? But then you realize they've like pulled <laughs> yeah. all these artifacts from all over the world. And basically, you know, they're claiming it as British when, you know, there were no pharaohs in, in Britain as far as sure. I'm you know, aware of. So some of that stuff rubs me the wrong way. I don't love it. Um, I would say the best museum I've ever been to is the Louvre. I mean, it's pretty the ridiculous. The Louvre is pretty amazing. Uh, so I would say that's number one. I'm also really big on archives. Archives are underrated in the museum game. Um, the best museum I went to last summer was actually the Buffalo Bill Museum in Cody, Wyoming. And <laughs> it was partly like a, a old West, like history museum about Buffalo Bill and just kind of his crazy life. But it was also just this insane, like firearms museum where basically like every gun manufacturer that exists just had like hundreds of guns, like just historic guns, giant rifles, muskets, you know, things that were used in the civil war and all this like put together behind this like amazing, like, you know, basically bulletproof glass. I mean, there was millions of dollars of guns, if not tens of millions of dollars of guns in this one place. And I'm afraid of guns. Like I would not touch a gun, a real gun. I, I wouldn't, I'm just a little paranoid. Yeah. So it was sort of like the wine massage dream from last week <laughs> where like it was my worst nightmare, but I couldn't take myself out of it. It was actually pretty fascinating. So if anyone's ever in Cody, Wyoming, you know, coming out of Yellowstone, uh, give the Buffalo Bill Museum a look. I would also say I like the Getty here in LA. Our museum's kind of indoors, outdoors, nice feel to it. Um, and I like the uh, American History Museum in D.C. Yeah. And those are probably some of my favorites. I like the American History Museum as well. I love the Air and Space Museum, but it is always, it's like too popular. And so it's always really crowded and miserable to, to get through. Although I've never been here. I've never tried to go on like a weekday. So maybe it's easier then. But um, yeah, I enjoy museums. I Mostly hearing you describe the Wyoming Gun Museum made me root for an NBA lockout in a couple years where <laughs> you and I can keep the pod going by just going on a road trip around America and we'll hit museums, we'll hit national parks, 
and we'll all get through it together. So maybe maybe that's what we look forward to um, because I, I'm never going to have a time in my life where I like have a reason to go to a Wyoming gun museum, but I don't know. Maybe maybe the, if the pod gets popular enough, you can you can draw me to these places. It sounds phenomenal. I'm I'm so in. I would love to go back twice. Uh, Next question. Have here. you ever been to? No, real quick though. Have you been to museum in DC? Um, the museum, or how we pronounce it's it? It's weird. I've been to parties there, but I've never been to it as a regular museum. Like I've been to events, and it, it's cool. Um, but I, I think it costs money, and it, I'm just not that into media. So I've never really like. Be, I've never really gotten into it. <laughs> I thought it was a cool idea. When I went there, I was worried it wasn't going to live up to the hype, and I enjoyed it. So if anyone's not been to that one, it also gets tons of crowds, though, too. So I, that's probably in the same, like, air and space category, but it's pretty solid. I think our museum talk is even more boring <laughs> than our Darren Collison talk. Um, so we should- Look, uh, you, we had a question that you skipped over that was uh, the NBA's best hairstyles, and I composed an entire list over here. So if you want to get back to some real basketball questions, you know I'm over here just <laughs> fiending, okay? You're the one who chooses the questions. Don't try to call me. All boring. right, fine, fine. I'm going to, we'll close it out with the hair question here. Uh, Ryan says, as I was watching the Magic vs. Thunder on Wednesday night, I could not help but notice the wonderful hair of Alfred Payton. This provoked the question... Who is on your guys' all-hair team? Um, so my only answer to this is Moochie Norris. He is my all-time favorite hairstyle in the NBA. The others I would include are Allen Iverson because his, his cornrows were iconic to a certain generation of basketball fans, and we can't ever forget that. Dirk Nowitzki is like the evolution of his hair is probably one. <laughs> almost as as great as the evolution of his actual game. Um, Scott Pollard, again, someone who is iconic in the early 2000s when I was in high school and actually cared about stuff like this. And then Kelly Oubre from from today's game, uh, Oubre's hair is fantastic. It reminds me of Rufio in in Hook because he has a little red patch in back. Good list. I would go, I'd start with Nikola Jokic. Uh, then I would go Alex Len from Phoenix. Uh, I'd look at Nicholas Batum from Charlotte, Boston's Al Horford. And then I'd go back to Denver for Mason Plumley. I think all those guys just know how to keep it tight. You know, you go in and you only have to order uh, your haircut at the barbershop, sort of like you're going through the Taco Bell drive through you know, just give me that number two. Uh, maybe they'll throw some Barbasol shave cream on your neck afterwards, give you a little back massage. It'll be fantastic. We don't need to have all these crazy hairstyles, and you keep it simple, nice and tight. Way to stay committed to your brand. <laughs> the most boring person in the universe. I still don't believe that you haven't seen Parks and Rec, for the record. that I, I think that you're lying just to stay on brand. No, I have not seen that. Is it a show or a movie? <laughs> It's a show. That's your homework. Before our podcast next Tuesday, I want you to watch. It's it's not even that good of a show, but just please watch it, and we'll discuss it on the podcast. Um, but this has been fun, and we will be back next week on Tuesday morning. We'll be getting back to our regular schedule. Any last words, Ben? Five-star reviews on iTunes. We're aiming for 10,000. Andrew, we know we can get to 10,000 five-star reviews by the holiday season. Also... 
openfloormail at gmail.com, openfloormail at gmail.com for all of your dream journal entries. They've been pouring in. I've been seeing them. We want more. Uh, also, your questions, comments, concerns, uh, hopefully not too much hate mail. Andrew, I will talk to you next week. All right, week. man. Take it easy. Another great edition of Open Floor is in the books. Did you know Locked On has a daily podcast for all 30 NBA teams? If you're a Lakers fan, search Locked On Lakers. A Celtics fan, search Locked On Celtics. Warriors fans, search Locked On Warriors. Yes, all 30 NBA teams have a daily bite-sized podcast on the Locked On Podcast Network. Search on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts for Locked On, your favorite team. Or tell your smart speaker to play podcasts, Locked On, your favorite team. It's the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day.